1 Thessalonians 4, and we will be in verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Lord, We pray for you to give us insight into a passage like this that speaks about things that have not yet come to pass, but one day will certainly. And this is the things that we look forward to as believers in you, trusting and Uh, thankful for the salvation that we have and then a longing for that day where that salvation that we believe by faith becomes ours actually by sight when we are reunited with our bodies glorified with you forever. Lord, we ask that as we look at, we conclude this season where we celebrate your first advent and we look at this, your second advent, that you would help us to, in our minds and in our hearts, bridge the two together. And as we look back in gratitude on our salvation, we look forward to with much longing and hope the ultimate glorification of us as your people. So we pray that you would fill us with your spirits and sharpen our minds so that we can understand these truths clearly, Lord, in your name. Amen. The second coming isn't a typical Christmas time sermon, for sure. And we look at a passage like this where we look at the second advent, and if you are anything like me, and maybe it's an inappropriate assumption to have, I'm still going to assume it for part of this message. You have been taught, I was taught, that we are now living in this age where we are, uh, it's called the church age, or the age of the Gentiles, if you will. And we are living in this time between the first advent and an event that will take place that will usher in a tribulation period where there will be more suffering than any, any other time in the history of the world. That period of time will be seven years. 
And during those seven years and about halfway through, three and a half years, the Antichrist will reveal himself having risen in power and he will persecute the church in ways that have never been persecuted, a Holocaust-type situation globally. And then at the end of those three and a half years that Christ will return and he will defeat the Antichrist and his armies, which are combined with some 200 million man armies in the valley of Megiddo there in the nation of Israel and wipe them out and he will establish his throne there in the city of Zion in Jerusalem that mount that sits on the southeasterly side of the city and from there he will physically rule and reign for a period of 1,000 years as the king of the earth And as king of the earth, there will be righteousness. These are the lamb lying down with the lion passages, you know, that kind of thing. Children grabbing serpents and holding them in their hands to play with. And you know those passages, I'm sure, well there at the end of the book of Isaiah. But after, oh, that rascal Satan, after those thousand years where he has been bound by a chain, he will be loosed again in order to trouble the nations and he'll go all around the globe and stir people up who have been humans living alongside glorified people for a thousand years. And these humans are just frustrated with the leadership of Jesus because they are still dead in their trespasses and sins, as it were. And they've just been making a show of their oblations and worships of Christ. And Satan will stir their hearts and they will take up arms and they will march to Israel once again to fight King Jesus and try to dethrone him from that throne. But of course, our Lord Jesus is victorious over them once again, ushering in the great white throne judgment where he will stand and the books will be open and every man will have to give an account for everything that they have ever done, good or evil. And all of those people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world will be cast into eternal fire and those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life will be ushered into the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, a giant cube that comes out of space and hovers over the earth where we can come and go for all of eternity. And God himself will dwell there in that city where streets are paved with gold and his throne sits astride a great river that has fruit along the banks of that river that will be for the feeding and the healing of all the nations. Sound familiar? Uh, That's just the big picture. There's plenty of details I could give you all along the way. If you've watched any modern Christian movies that pertain to the end time, this is the scenario that they portray. And most of the time, their specific emphasis is, pardon me, during that seven-year tribulation period. And what ushers in that seven-year tribulation period, it is supposed, is something that you probably are all familiar with because in popular culture recently, it has been an area of attention, and that's the rapture of the church. Remember a few years ago, Harold Camping had his billboards all around, rapture days coming, May I think it was 25th, 
Anyways, I don't remember. It doesn't matter anyways. But he had his signs up and there was people who were dedicated to listening to family radio who bought RVs and sold their houses and plastered the sides of their RVs with rapture days coming. Better get right or get left. You know, quirky little clever sayings like that that actually aren't helpful in preaching the gospel and sharing it with your friends. But I remember when that day came and went and there were people who were ridiculing the Christian faith. And, you know, I would hear on the radio somebody saying, oh, he bought a rapture cake and he was expecting to be able to celebrate all of the Christians being gone with his cake. And now it was just sitting on his counter because we hadn't left. And those kind of things. And, of course, you look back and we, we wince at those things. We chuckle at those things. But those things have become a part of our culture and have become a part of modern American evangelicalism because of a misunderstanding and misuse of the text of Scripture. And I want to show you, I'm going to go through at least three, maybe four, of the most common rapture passages. And I want to demonstrate to you that if you read the text, that it's pretty clear what it's getting at. You have to bring in a truckload, in fact, a plane load, maybe a barge load of presuppositions into one of these texts and try to cram it in there in order to get it to say that there is a rapture that happens and God takes people out, but yet everybody else gets to live and there's this tribulation period of time. So let me show you my cards right in advance. I think scripture's clear that the rapture, which I will show you is a biblical concept, takes place at the second coming of Christ. And there isn't this big, long, intermediate period of time in between the rapture and, and the second coming of Christ. One of the big problems is, is that if you have this bifurcated system of the second coming of Christ, then you have things that have to take place in order for the rapture to happen. And so rather than people looking forward to the second coming, which I think all of these texts point us to, you're looking for events. You're looking for, is Benjamin Netanyahu going to get reelected here again in the nation of Israel? And, oh, is this a prophetic utter? Is this something that's ushering? This could be the time. I can't tell you how many times in studying prophecy I heard the words, this could be. And I'll tell you what, those three words are what shattered eventually my constructed premillennialism. Because if this could be always failed, we can say that about anything, anywhere, anytime, and we're okay. We've got our safety net because we said, well, this could be. A second problem with this rapture theory is that what you are honestly wishing, even though nobody's going to explicitly say it, is harm and holocaust to come again on the Jews. You're hoping for, you're not saying these words, but you're believing in the, time, the fact that an Antichrist is going to rise and re-persecute the Jews in a way that they maybe haven't been before if you're to believe the things those people are saying. And biblically, according to Romans chapter 11, that's untenable, brothers. Sisters, we can't believe that. 
We can't rest our hope in the fact that Christ's going to caught us up out of here and then all of this bad stuff is re-going to come upon God's people who is a branch. He is, re, re, he is going to re-graft back into the main branch, Jesus Christ. So you can see I'm kind of passionate about this subject. And so I want to get right into these texts here. Okay, I don't want this to get too far away from me. So let's go back and what I'm going to do in each one of these texts is read them and just point out little highlights. I don't think I need to do, at least in a sermon like this, any super in-depth exegesis or explaining and pulling apart and picking apart the text. There's a time and a place certainly to do that. We've already went through 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to, you can go back and listen to those sermons on the podcast. But if you, right now in this time and place, I'm going to go over them. And I think a simple reading with just a little explanation is going to be clear enough. And if it's not, that's fine. You can talk to me afterwards. And we have all of the time until the second coming to talk about these things, right? So let's look at the text. But... I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. What we're going to find when we look at the second Thessalonians passage, which we'll look at next, is there has been um, a, a, a group of people who've come in and been taking the teachings Paul said, which apparently he talked about the second coming of Christ, extensively enough for false teachers to come in and hear it and twist it. And so what he's doing here is he's giving a correction against some of the misinformation that has come to them about the second coming of Christ. And it has to do with those who've already died. Apparently, these false teachers, pardon me, back up. Apparently, Paul made the second coming of Christ so glorious that when these false teachers came in and said, well, these people have died, they don't get to participate in the glories of the second coming that Paul talked about. That grieved the Thessalonians. And that's understandable, right? We all have had people who are near and dear to us who walked in the faith, who have lived lives as believers and yet have gone home and they're now with the Lord, safely tucked away in heaven, as it were. Well, we want and we believe that they're going to, they are experiencing and are going to continue to experience all of the glories of being with Christ, right? Paul said, if I am absent from the body, I am present with the Lord, right? How many times have I quoted 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3? At least a hundred in probably just the last year. That's one of my favorite passages because it's that beatific vision, that beautiful vision of God on his throne. And it talks about that when we die, we get to go be with him and see him even as he is. So Paul is writing to them and saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about this truth. I want you to understand it in a way that's going to give you hope. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, one of the things to point out right at the very beginning is all of the rapture passages are pastoral. None of them are technical, theological, eschatological treatises. What does that mean? Technical, meaning a very specific way of understanding 
theology, the study of God, in terms of eschatology, which is the study of the end times. None of these passages are that. By pastoral, what I mean is they are all intended to convey comfort and hope and joy. They're all intended to give you a vision of God and for your eyes to be refocused on him. Because that's the only place, beloved, where you're going to receive encouragement is from Jesus himself. Not from wondering what do, you know, why are they building secret military bases with barbed wire facing in in certain parts of our nation? What about these stickers on the back of street signs? Are those indicated that these are going to be pickups for Christians who are carted off to concentration camps? What about black helicopters? You know, I mean, I can go on and on and on and on about the silly stuff that I've heard over the years about this particular thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Governments certainly want to persecute Christians in lots of places in the world. And if things go a certain way here in America... In the future, I don't know if they are, I don't know if they're not. I'm not prophet- prophesying here. But if they do, there might come a time where we're persecuted here too as well. Sure, that absolutely could be. But that's not what Paul's point is here in this text. That's not Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. That's not Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. That's not Jesus' point in Matthew 24. It's not John's point in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. You following me? They're pastoral. They're meant to encourage a persecuted, grieving church that really is having faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith is being strained by false teaching. That's what's going on here. That's huge for us to come to these texts because that tells us Paul isn't expecting you to cart in this truckload, this plane load, this boatload full of presuppositions in order to understand this text. He's meaning for you to read these simple words and go, oh, that makes so much sense. Praise God. All right. So, anyways, that was a bit of an introduction. (laughs) We believe... That Jesus died and he rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord. Right? It's pretty clear. So those who are alive, there are people who are asleep who are with God right now, who are with Jesus right now. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring those people with him. We who are still alive, who are not asleep, who have not died, when the second coming happens, when the Lord comes, we are not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. We don't get to go before them. We don't get any special favor over and above them. They are coming with Christ. And if anything, they're going to receive this glorious coming with the Lord where we are going to meet him. For the Lord himself, now he describes what the second coming is going to be like. The Lord himself, he's going to descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, I've heard 
ad nauseum so many ways of, oh, well, this trumpet isn't really the last trumpet. It's the third trumpet or it's the, this trumpet or it's the this. Oh, this command of the archangel isn't this cry in the book of Revelation. It's this. That's not Paul's point. <laughs> Paul's point is that when Christ comes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. The angels are going to cry out as he comes. Trumpets are going to blare and announce the second coming of Christ. It's going to be a glorious event. That's the point of what Paul's getting at. When he comes, he's going to come in kingly triumph over his foes with the army triumphant behind him, the church triumphant who is already in heaven, where we as the church militant who are still alive and remain, we're going to see him return and listen to what it says. And then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up with them. We're going to be with them all in the clouds. And this is where some people go off. Well, they assume, well, if we're in the clouds, we're going back to heaven with him. But that's not what it says. And all it says is we will always be with the Lord. That's all it says. We will always be with the Lord. But when he returns, we're going to be with him. Wherever he is, we're going to be with him. That's all this text says. Now, this is the passage, and the reason I come here first is where we get that word rapture. Some people say rapture's not in the Bible. Eh, kind of, sort of. It is. It's verse 17. Then we who are left will be caught up. That's in Latin, the word rapture. Not in Greek, but in Latin. And of course, many, 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 many years of church history, the Bible was only read in Latin. So this is where that word rapture comes from. It's an English twisting or transliteration of this word rapturo in Latin. So it says here, Christ is going to return. Woohoo! All the saints are coming with him. There's going to be an amazing, amazing party that happens as he comes with angels crying out. The congregation's probably shouting as well. Trumpets are blaring and Christ returns in majesty. And then we are caught up and we get to be with him because we are his as well. That's good and glorious. That's encouragement, isn't it? You see, that focuses my attention right back to Jesus. It doesn't focus my attention on other events. It doesn't focus my attention on the newspaper. Or I mean, who reads newspaper anymore? Sorry, Fred. But most people don't read newspaper anymore. Twitter, we get our news on, right? Or something electronic. Well, look with me at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Verse 5 of chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Right? Persecution. So again, in his writing to them, in the context of persecution, he's going to be pastoral here. Okay? He isn't stopping and giving them, again, a a technical, theological, eschatological treatise. He's giving them pastoral words. Since indeed God considers it 
just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in all his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our test, uh, pardon me, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you. You see, here's the pastoral element. Because you're suffering, God is going to repay that suffering. It's, you are not suffering unjustly. Well, maybe you are suffering unjustly and God will bring justice upon what you are suffering is the best way to say that. But Paul prays for them. To this end, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. You see what he does there? Coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to them. One event. This is the same thing in two different forms of saying. We see this all the time with Jesus Christ. He's our great Lord and God. He's our Savior and God. Saying the same thing about one person. This is the same kind of construct here. That the second coming and our being gathered together with him are one event. And Paul says, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be deceived about false teachers saying, he's already come, he's already come. Jesus warned us of that, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses today say, Jesus did return and he's in Brooklyn. He's just waiting. He's waiting. Seventh-day Adventists, some of them are evangelical, some of them are not. Believe that Jesus has already come back and performed his investigative judgment. He's already returned. Secretly performing an investigative judgment. These texts teach us no. We're not to be fooled by that stuff. We're not to be caught off guard by that stuff. Instead, we're to have our focus back on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is especially helpful for a persecuted church, which is who Paul is writing to. And we have to remind ourselves of that over and over and over when we're looking at this stuff. We have to remember Paul is writing to a group of people that are just struggling. They're suffering. It's hard. People are being killed for their faith, drug out of their homes. Remember the book of Hebrews when we went through that taught us that there were people who were imprisoned for their faith. And other Christians went to bring them aid. And while they were gone from their homes, people came into their homes stole and vandalized their places and then apparently graffitied or something disrepute and called them names and all manner of evil things. 
That is some harsh persecution that you're enduring at the hands of people. This is a comfort to that. Have you been treated unjustly? Know that when Christ returns, he will make everything right. Right? It echoes the psalmist. Oh Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why are the rich getting away with all of the things they're doing? Why are these people who are criminals and villains getting away with it, Lord? Lord, where are you? What's going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? And he responds to himself. He preaches to himself. And he says, and then I went into the house of the Lord and I remembered their end. I remembered that God is never going to let any injustice get away. That every unrighteous act will be punished before the Lord. Everything that is not conformed to the law of God will be punished. And so the glorious hope for us is that I can't stand before that kind of judgment. So praise God, Jesus bore that judgment in my place. So for me, now that I'm in Christ, my judgment has been dealt with. My hope is secure, but the rest of the world doesn't live there and they hate us for it. Jesus said they hated me and they're going to hate you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a long passage. And to be perfectly honest, if I was doing a series, I would spend a Sunday on each one of these. But I'm not going to. We're going to. Yeah, good. We'll get through Matthew 24 as well. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me give you some of the context here. Okay. Paul goes on this lengthy discussion about the resurrection from the dead. And he makes this clear distinction between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are in Adam are going to die and there is no hope for them because Adam was not resurrected from the dead. Christ and those who are in Christ have a hope of resurrection because Christ was raised from the dead. Him being raised from the dead is the great apologetic of the Christian church. You know what that means? A defense for the faith. A reason for why we have the hope that we do. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is the great apologetic the church has. And it's the great comfort that the believer has. It isn't just for the world out there that our faith is true, but it's for me. Because if Christ is raised from the dead and I am in Christ because of my faith and trust in him, then I will be raised where he is too. That's great news. Because if I don't have that hope, then all I have in this life is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that, this passage is actually where that verse comes from, here in 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have the hope of the resurrection, then all you have is now, this moment. These breaths that you breathe here are all that you have. This few short years of life that you walk around on this big heap of dirt flying through space is all you're ever going to have. And other than that, you are absolutely hopeless. You have nothing. 
So in one way, Richard Dawkins is right when he posts on the side of the bus, when he says, there is no God, so go have fun with your life. If you don't believe in God, then what else do you have? Quit wasting your time, atheists, trying to debate Christians. Go live your life. (laughs) But we have hope, you see. The good and glorious truth is that that's not true. The truth is we have hope because Christ has been raised from the dead, most certainly. And therefore, when those who believe in him die, they will be resurrected as well. And the question then follows, well, what about those of us who are alive and who remain when Jesus Christ returns? And he does go there here in verse 50. I tell you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Right? Those who are in Adam, all they are is flesh and blood. They're spiritually dead. They have no hope. They are perishable. We who are in Jesus Christ have been spiritually born again. And we have newness of life in him. And we are imperishable. Now verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Oh, goody, 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 goody. Everybody loves a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We already know that's death from 1 Thessalonians. Paul's the same writer here. We know this is his common language. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Right? Same language as 1 Thessalonians. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we all shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that's written in Hosea, Chapter 14, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But the power of sin is the law. And therefore, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ooh, that just stirs your heart, I hope. (laughs) I I hope that this kind of stuff just lifts you up into the heavenlies in some small amount. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And he is trying to communicate to us. You're suffering now. Your body is perishable now. You're experiencing sickness now. You're experiencing hostility against you now. You're experiencing the just decay of life now. This body's perishable, but Christ rose from the dead for you, so it must become imperishable. It is an absolute certainty that this happens. As much as Christ has been raised, so we shall be raised. And we shall be changed in the moment, in that twinkling of an eye. And of course, this is where them rapture fanatics come. And they go, oh, looky, looky, here. Changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. It's the rapture. It is. But it's happening, if you'll notice, at the second coming of Christ. Once again, it's the clearest of language. 
Let's finish up by looking at Matthew 24. Now as you're turning there, depending upon which strand of that kind of theology that you have been taught, some people will say there's no rapture here in this passage. But there are plenty who will say that there's rapture in this passage. This is why I left this one for the end. Because if I hadn't gotten to it, it wouldn't have been that big a deal. But here we are. So let's walk through it. There's a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy passage. I do encourage you to go read it on your own at home. But let's walk through... Oh, let's start in verse 15. So, there's going to be a lot of things here that I'm not going to explain right off the bat. Because my goal right now is to show you what the second coming of Christ is and that it includes the rapture. So there's lots of other things that go on here. I'm not spending time on it. So if that frustrates you, fine, ask me questions later, okay? So when the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's one of the things I'm not talking about. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what's in the house. Don't let the one that's in field return to get his cloak. Alas, for the women who are pregnant and nursing in those days, oh no, pray that your flight wouldn't be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then... There will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world. No, no, now, ah, now, no, and will ever be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says, hey, look, here's the Christ. Or he says, oh, look, there he is. Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. And they're going to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. Praise God, parentheses, not possible. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out there. If they say to you, look, he's in one of these inner rooms. Don't believe it. Why? Why shouldn't we believe it? Because here's what the second coming of Christ is going to look like. Verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The whole context is there's all these bad things going to happen. And when those bad things happen, there's going to be a lot of people who say Jesus has returned. 
Check it out, he's in the forest. Look over here, he's this. Look over here, he's that. And you're not to believe it. Why? Because he tells us what the second coming is going to look like. It's going to look like lightning that flashes across the sky. And I'll tell you, everyone sees that. It's not hidden in a corner. It's not hidden in a room. It's on display for all to see. And when this event happens, notice again, trumpet sounds. Notice again, angels are involved. And notice again, the elector caught up to be with him. Beloved, I want you to be so encouraged. Because I don't want you to feel like that you have to pick up Time Magazine in one hand and your Bible in the other. And this, Time Magazine or Twitter or Reddit or whatever you, wherever you get your news from, is what you need to interpret the, the Bible and to get an accurate understanding of the second coming of Christ. I don't want you to do that anymore. That's bondage. It's important to get, read the news and it's important to have an understanding of world events. Don't misunderstand me, beloved, at all. But when we get distracted from the real point, which is Christ coming back, not perhaps today he's going to capture a little bit of us and get us out of here before the real bad stuff happens. Listen, persecution's promised to us. Those who desire to live the godly life will endure persecution. We're going to suffer. We don't get a pass. Like Uno, we don't get a skip card. Or a rapture card, if you will. (laughs) If persecution comes, we're going to endure it. And how we get through enduring that is we're trusting Christ all along the way that he will right all the wrongs done that we've had to endure in this life. So beloved, as I close and wrap this up, just know this, the second coming of Christ could be any moment. Could be right now. Okay, it wasn't, but it could have been. And I believe that not just in the context of the rapture, but Jesus actually coming back in the clouds, just like he left, like the angel said he would in the beginning of the book of Acts, for his church, that he might come in triumph and rule and reign here on this world, making all things right, correcting all injustices. Beloved, this first advent that we have, we get to celebrate that he came and saved us from our sins. The second coming, the second advent, we long and look forward to because not only are we saved, but everything is redeemed. We don't have a responsibility as Christians to redeem culture or to redeem this act. Or redeem this stuff over here. We want to be good, believing citizens of this world while we live in that world. But beloved, we long for the day where Christ returns and he's the one who does the redeeming work. He's the one who does the restoring work. He's the one who comes and makes everything that was wrong right. Lord, We thank you, we thank you, we thank you that we can sit confidently here as we hear from your word and know that these things are true and they're they're really simple. Uh, This is stuff that we, as we look at, Lord, I marvel and I thank you, Lord, so much that you have allowed me not only to have learned all of that stuff back in my own life but lord have brought me through it to see just how simple this truth really is and how when you return we get to be with you and lord i want to encourage everybody who listens to me with those words 
May they not be confusing. May they not be difficult. May they not be distractions, but instead fuel for our faith, food for our belief, that we long for and look forward towards your return, Lord Jesus. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.